Chapter Nine of Memoirs of Napoleon Bonaparte, Volume Six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Gillian Hendry. Memoirs of Napoleon Bonaparte, Volume Six, by Louis Antoine Fauvelet de Bourrienne. Chapter Nine, eighteen o two. Proverbial falsehood of bulletins. Monsieur Doublet. Creation of the Legion of Honour. Opposition to it in the Council and other authorities of the State. The partisans of a hereditary system. The question of the consulship for life. The historian of these times ought to put no faith in the bulletins, dispatches, notes and proclamations which have emanated from Bonaparte or passed through his hands. For my part, I believe that the proverb as great a liar as a bulletin, has as much truth in it as the axiom two and two make four. The bulletins always announced what Bonaparte wished to be believed true, but to form a proper judgment on any fact, counter-bulletins must be sought for and consulted. It is well known, too, that Bonaparte attached great importance to the place whence he dated his bulletins. Thus he dated his decrees respecting the theatres and Hamburg beef at Moscow, the official documents were almost always incorrect. There was falsity in the exaggerated descriptions of his victories, and falsity again in the suppression or palliation of his reverses and losses. A writer, if he took his materials from the bulletins and the official correspondence of the time, would compose a romance rather than a true history. Of this many proofs have been given in the present work. Another thing which always appeared to me very remarkable was that Bonaparte, notwithstanding his incontestable superiority, studied to depreciate the reputations of his military commanders and to throw on their shoulders faults which he had committed himself. It is notorious that complaints and remonstrances, as energetic as they were well-founded, were frequently addressed to General Bonaparte on the subject of his unjust and partial bulletins, which often attributed the success of a day to someone who had very little to do with it, and made no mention of the officer who actually had the command. The complaints made by the officers and soldiers stationed at Damietta compelled General Lanus, the commander, to remonstrate against the alteration of a bulletin by which an engagement with a body of Arabs was represented as an insignificant affair and the loss trifling, though the general had stated the action to be one of importance and the loss considerable. The misstatement, in consequence of his spirited and energetic remonstrances, was corrected. Bonaparte took Malta, as is well known, in forty-eight hours. The empire of the Mediterranean, secured to the English by the Battle of Aboukir, and their numerous cruising vessels, gave them the means of starving the garrison, and of thus forcing General Vaubois, the commandant of Malta, who was cut off from all communication with France, to capitulate. Accordingly, on the 4th of September, 1800, he yielded up the Gibraltar of the Mediterranean after a noble defence of two years. These facts require to be stated in order the better to understand what follows. On the 22nd of February, 1802, a person of the name of Dublay, who was the commissary of the French government at Malta when we possessed that island, called upon me at the Tuileries. He complained bitterly that the letter which he had written from Malta to the First Consul 
on the second Ventose, year eight, ninth of February, eighteen hundred, had been altered in the Moniteur. I congratulated him, said Monsieur Doublet, on the eighteenth Brumaire, and informed him of the state of Malta, which was very alarming. Quite the contrary was printed in the Moniteur, and that is what I complain of. It placed me in a very disagreeable situation at Malta, where I was accused of having concealed the real situation of the island, in which I was discharging a public function that gave weight to my words. I observed to him that, as I was not the editor of the Moniteur, it was of no use to apply to me, but I told him to give me a copy of the letter, and I would mention the subject to the First Consul, and communicate the answer to him. Doubly searched his pocket for the letter, but could not find it. He said he would send a copy, and begged me to discover how the error originated. On the same day he sent me the copy of the letter, in which, after congratulating Bonaparte on his return, the following passage occurs. Quote, Hasten to save Malta with men and provisions. No time is to be lost. End quote. For this passage, these words were substituted in the Moniteur. Quote, his name inspires the brave defenders of Malta with fresh courage. We have men and provisions. End quote. Ignorant of the motives of so strange a perversion, I showed this letter to the First Consul. He shrugged his shoulders and said, laughing, Take no notice of him. He is a fool. Give yourself no further trouble about it. It was clear there was nothing more to be done. It was, however, in despite of me, that Monsieur Doublet was played this ill turn. I represented to the First Consul the inconveniences which Monsieur Doublet might experience from this affair, but I very rarely saw letters or reports published as they were received. I can easily understand how particular motives might be alleged in order to justify such falsifications, for when the path of candour and good faith is departed from, any pretext is put forward to excuse bad conduct. What sort of a history would he write who should consult only the pages of the Moniteur? After the vote for adding a second ten years to the duration of Bonaparte's consulship, he created on the 19th of May the Order of the Legion of Honour. This institution was soon followed by that of the new nobility. Thus, in a short space of time, the Concordat to tranquillise consciences and re-establish harmony in the Church the decree to recall the immigrants, the continuance of the consular power for ten years by way of preparation for the consulship for life and the possession of the empire, and the creation in a country which had abolished all distinctions of an order which was to engender prodigies, followed closely on the heels of each other. The Bourbons, in reviving the abolished orders, were wise enough to preserve along with them the Legion of Honour. It has already been seen how, in certain circumstances, the First Consul always escaped from the consequences of his own precipitation, and got rid of his blunders by throwing the blame on others, as, for example, in the affair of the parallel between Caesar, Cromwell, and Bonaparte. He was indeed so precipitate that one might say, had he been a gardener, he would have wished to see the fruits ripen before the blossoms had fallen off. This inconsiderate haste nearly proved fatal to the creation of the Legion of Honour, a project which ripened in his mind as soon as he beheld the orders glittering at the buttonholes of the foreign ministers. He would frequently exclaim, This is well, 
these are the things for the people. I was, I must confess, a decided partisan of the foundation in France of a new chivalric order, because I think, in every well-conducted state, the chief of the government ought to do all in his power to stimulate the honour of the citizens, and to render them more sensible to honorary distinctions than to pecuniary advantages. I tried, however, at the same time, to warn the first consul of his precipitancy. He heard me not, but I must, with equal frankness, confess that, on this occasion, I was soon freed from all apprehension with respect to the consequences of the difficulties he had to encounter in the council and in the other constituted orders of the state. On the 4th of May, 1801, he brought forward, for the first time officially, in the council of state, the question of the establishment of the Legion of Honour, which, on the 19th of May, 1802, was proclaimed a law of the state. The opposition to this measure was very great, and all the power of the First Consul, the force of his arguments, and the immense influence of his position, could procure him no more than fourteen votes out of twenty-four. The same feeling was displayed at the Tribunate, where the measure only passed by a vote of fifty-six to thirty-eight. The balance was about the same in the legislative body, where the votes were one hundred and sixty-six to one hundred and ten. It follows then that, out of the 394 voters in those three separate bodies, a majority only of 78 was obtained. Surprised at so feeble a majority, the First Consul said in the evening, Ah, I see very clearly the prejudices are still too strong. You were right, I should have waited. It was not a thing of such urgency. But then, it must be owned, the speakers for the measure defended it badly. The strong minority has not judged me fairly. Be calm, rejoined I. Without doubt it would have been better to wait, but the thing is done, and you will soon find that the taste for these distinctions is not near gone by. It is a taste which belongs to the nature of man. You may expect some extraordinary circumstances from this creation. You will soon see them. In April 1802, the First Consul left no stone unturned, to get himself declared consul for life. It is perhaps at this epoch of his career that he most brought into play those principles of duplicity and dissimulation which are commonly called Machiavellian. Never were trickery, falsehood, cunning, and affected moderation put into play with more talent or success. In the month of March, hereditary succession and a dynasty were in everybody's mouths. Lucien was the most violent propagator of these ideas, and he pursued his vocation of apostle with constancy and address. It has already been mentioned that, by his brother's confession, he published in 1800 a pamphlet enforcing the same ideas, which work Bonaparte afterwards condemned as a premature development of his projects. Monsieur de Talleyrand, whose ideas could not be otherwise than favourable to the monarchical form of government, was ready to enter into explanations with the cabinets of Europe on the subject. The words which now constantly resounded in every ear were stability and order, under cloak of which the downfall of the people's right was to be concealed. At the same time, Bonaparte, with the view of disparaging the real friends of constitutional liberty, always called them ideologues or terrorists. Footnote I have classed all these people under the denomination of ideologues, which, besides, is what specially and literally fits them. 
searchers after ideas, ideas generally empty. They have been made more ridiculous than even I expected by this application, a correct one, of the term ideologue to them. The phrase has been successful, I believe, because it was mine. Napoleon in Jung's Lucien, tome 2, page 293. Napoleon welcomed every attack on this description of sage. Much pleased with a discourse by Royer Collard, he said to Talleyrand, Do you know, Monsieur le Grand Electeur, that a new and serious philosophy is rising in my university, which may do us great honour and disembarrass us completely of the ideologues, slaying them on the spot by reasoning? It is with something of the same satisfaction that Renan, writing in 1898, says that the final dreams had been disastrous when brought into the domain of facts, and the human concerns only began to improve when the ideologues ceased to meddle with them. Souvenir, page 122. End footnote. Madame Bonaparte opposed with fortitude the influence of counsels which she believed fatal to her husband. He indeed spoke rarely and seldom confidentially with her on politics or public affairs. Mind your distaff or your needle, was with him a common phrase. The individuals who applied themselves with most perseverance in support of the hereditary question were Lucien, Roderer, Regnon de Saint-Jean d'Angely, and Fontenelle. Their efforts were aided by the conclusion of peace with England, which, by re-establishing general tranquillity for a time, afforded the First Consul an opportunity of forwarding any plan. While the First Consul aspired to the throne of France, his brothers, especially Lucien, affected a ridiculous pride and pretension. Take an almost incredible example, of which I was witness. On Sunday, the 9th of May, Lucien came to see Madame Bonaparte, who said to him, Why did you not come to dinner last Monday? Because there was no place marked for me. The brothers of Napoleon ought to have their first place after him. What am I to understand by that? answered Madame Bonaparte. If you are the brother of Bonaparte, recollect what you were. At my house, all places are the same. Eugène would never have committed such a folly. Footnote. On such points, there was constant trouble with the Bonapartist family, as will be seen in Madame de Remoussat's memoirs. For an instance, in 1812, where Joseph insisted on his mother taking precedence of Josephine at a dinner in his house, when Napoleon settled the matter by seizing Josephine's arm and leading her in first, to the consternation of the party. But Napoleon, right in this case, had his own ideas on such points. The place of the Princess Elisa, the eldest of his sisters, had been put below that of Caroline, Queen of Naples. Elisa was then only Princess of Lucca. The Emperor suddenly rose, and by a shift to the right, placed the Princess Elisa above the Queen. Now, said he, do not forget that in the imperial family I am the only king. Jung's Lucien, tome 2, page 251. This rule he seems to have adhered to, for when he and his brothers went in the same carriage to the Champ de Mai in 1815, Jerome, titular king of Westphalia, had to take the front seat, while his elder brother, Lucien, only bearing the Roman title of Prince de Canino, sat on one of the seats of honour alongside Napoleon. Jerome was disgusted and grumbled at a king having to give way to a mere Roman prince. 
See Jung's Lucien, Tome 2, page 190. End footnote. At this period, when the consulate for life was only in embryo, flattering consuls poured in from all quarters and tended to encourage the first consul in his design of grasping at absolute power. Liberty rejected an unlimited power and set bounds to the means he wished and had to employ in order to gratify his excessive love of war and conquest. The present state of things, this consulate of ten years, said he to me, does not satisfy me. I consider it calculated to excite unceasing troubles. On the 7th of July, 1801, he observed, The question whether France will be a republic is still doubtful. It will be decided in five or six years. It was clear that he thought this too long a term. Whether he regarded France as his property, or considered himself as the people's delegate and the defender of their rights, I am convinced the first consul wished the welfare of France. But then, that welfare was in his mind inseparable from absolute power. It was with pain I saw him following this course. The friends of liberty, those who sincerely wished to maintain a government constitutionally free, allowed themselves to be prevailed upon to consent to an extension of ten years of power beyond the ten years originally granted by the constitution. They made this sacrifice to glory and to that power which was its consequence, and they were far from thinking they were lending their support to shameless intrigues. They were firm, but for the moment only, and the nomination for life was rejected by the Senate, who voted only ten years more power to Bonaparte, who saw the vision of his ambition again adjourned. The First Consul dissembled his displeasure with that profound art which, when he could not do otherwise, he exercised to an extreme degree. To a message of the Senate on the subject of that nomination, he returned a calm but evasive and equivocating answer, in which, nourishing his favourite hope of obtaining more from the people than from the Senate, he declared with hypocritical humility that he would submit to this new sacrifice if the wish of the people demanded what the Senate authorised. Such was the homage he paid to the sovereignty of the people, which was soon to be trampled under his feet. An extraordinary convocation of the Council of State took place on Monday, the 10th of May. A communication was made to them, not merely of the Senate's consultation, but also of the First Consul's adroit and insidious reply. The Council regarded the First merely as a notification, and proceeded to consider on what question the people should be consulted. Not satisfied with granting to the First Consul ten years of prerogative, the Council thought it best to strike the iron while it was hot, and not to stop short in the middle of so pleasing a work. In fine, they decided that the following question should be put to the people. Shall the First Consul be appointed for life, and shall he have the power of nominating his successor? The reports of the police had besides much influence on the result of this discussion, for they one and all declared that the whole of Paris demanded a consul for life, with the right of naming a successor. The decisions on these two questions were carried, as it were, by storm. The appointment for life passed unanimously, and the right of naming the successor by a majority. The first consul, however, formally declared that he condemned this second measure, which had not originated with himself. On receiving the decision of the Council of State, the first consul, to mask his plan for attaining absolute power, thought it advisable to appear to reject 
a part of what was offered him. He therefore cancelled that clause which proposed to give him the power of appointing a successor, and which had been carried by a small majority. End of chapter 9